Our scripture reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is good, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father, you have called us to yourself, you have come to us in your Son, and you have by your Spirit drawn us again today. Would you, Spirit, open our eyes to see things that we would not see until, or unless you do. We are dependent upon you to feed us, to meet us, to strengthen us, and to fit us for the the world to come. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we complete today a three-week series. So part three of a series that started three weeks ago now, uh, based on a verse in, uh, in 2 Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy about um, the generation and this expression from generation to generation, giving rise to this little short series. And what we've done for the last couple of weeks, Nate has led us through this. We've talked about the focus that uh, is to be ours, where we are to look to the things above, that our focus in this world is on things that are not in this world, but are above that shape this world. Uh, we just sang about... Uh, we have nothing besides you. There's nothing that we find our joy and delight in in this world, or you can't find it in this clod of dirt, is what we just sang. And that's the reminder from Colossians 3 that, that there are things that are true and lovely and beautiful that are beyond our, the reach of our hand, but within the reach of our hearts. And that's our focus as we live from generation to generation. The call then is to tell that coming generation. It's story time. 
We tell this story of God's deliverance and his favor and faithfulness, his purposes. And we, we looked at Psalm 78, what that conversation sounds like. You can look at it again later. So Colossians 3 and Psalm 78. And today we come to even further back where this story in some sense has its beginning and it takes shape and continues to shape us from Deuteronomy 7. Our hope in the midst of it all is our covenant-keeping God. It's something I've just observed, and some of this is out of my own life and watching yours and others, but is, that is this. For a lot of us, we don't like to stand out. I mean, when the spotlight comes on us, we run the other way. Um, we'd rather not stand out. We would rather blend in. And there's something understandable about that and something out of our own histories that, that, that where we can trace that. Do you remember fifth grade? Well, some of you do because that's where you are or have been recently or hope to be one day. But there is something that occurs around that time that honestly doesn't go away. It's this idea of I need to be accepted. I need to fit. If you're a parent who's ever had a child come home from school or wherever and say, I just don't fit. That's a hard moment for a parent. It's hard for a child, but it's just as hard for a parent to hear a child say, I don't fit. And that hurts. It hurts because it's not safe, and it hurts because something is threatened. And frankly, if children don't fit, there are other children that pick up on that and zero in on it and make you feel even less of a fit. And with kids, the need to be a part of a group is instinctual to fit in. It's survival almost. They want to fit in and, and be like everyone else because it gives them a sense of safety and security. So when a child tells a parent they don't fit, they're also saying, I don't feel safe. And then anxiety comes and the thoughts that go with it. I'm different. And sadly, other children will pick up on that, as I said. But sometimes, this is true for fifth grade and way beyond Sometimes there are good reasons to stand out in particular ways that we are to do so. That's what we find tucked into this passage before us. This call on our lives is to not blend in to the culture in which we live, but to live lives that are distinctive because of the one to whom we belong. The argument that we come across in these verses is simple. It's unthinkable to surrender a privileged position by compromise. It's unthinkable to, to back away from who you are and to lose who you are. It's unthinkable. Moses and, and the prophets go on to tell us. 
And here's what we're going to find in our passage today. We're going to, we're with the time that we have, explore these, uh, these threads. The call to stand out. The reasons we are to do so. And what happens when we don't. The call to stand out is coming right out of the chute. It's right in verse 6, if you'll look at our text, where, where God, through Moses, says to us, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That is, friends, your identity and your status. That's where this story starts. It starts with who you are your identity and your makeup and, and the status that is yours. You are different because of God's work. And this actually, uh, this is the only time we run across this. If you were to read from Genesis forward, you would have heard this. This is an echo of Exodus 19, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, which really make us distinctive you uh, would have heard these words in 19, Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Remember that? And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And that story continues. It's, it's, it's who we are. You are holy in the Lord is the, is the word that recurs there. Um, if I were to ask those among us that are holy to stand, don't worry. But none of us would really put ourselves in that category of being holy for probably good reasons, <laughs> legitimate reasons. But God's word is coming at you again and again from different angles to say, that's who you are. You have been set apart. You've been set apart for a purpose. And that setting apart begins this process of transformation and change where you going from the king, go from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. And guess what happens along the way? You become more and more holy. There is holiness that begins to take root in your life as that, as that unrenewed part of your heart is transformed over time and word and prayer and community together, there are changes that occur. And some of you are living, all of you are living evidence of so that change that is at work. But what, what, what Moses and this passage is really directing is our hearts and attention to is that you've been set apart. You've been distinguished. The passage that we begin with began, begins with the word for, meaning Based on what I've just said, here's where we are. We didn't read that, but let me tell you what we skipped. In those first five verses, Israel is charged and instructed to adopt a policy. A policy. A policy of complete renunciation from the seven nations of Canaan in which they find themselves living. There are seven people groups around them, and God tells them, you are to be distinct. 
from those around you. Because I have something grand and glorious in mind that calls for that. You will be a light to the nations. You will be my people in that place for my purposes and your good and the glory of the world and my own. My glory is tied to who you are. That's your identity. Holy, set apart. The the distinctions they were to make, you can read it later, they were political. There was to be no treaty or alliance or, interestingly, literally covenant with these surrounding nations. So no alliances. They were social. There was no intermarriage, no blending of the peoples with other peoples. They They were religious barriers to break down altars of idolatry, to remove that posing threat to syncretize religion and become something uh, Israel plus or gospel plus. It's to avoid those things. And then we come to the New Testament. And what the Canaanites were for Israel, the Romans were for the New Testament church. There were religious and political and social Fences that they were to erect because, and here's, here's a surprise to some of us, that with even, even within the freedom that is ours in Christ, and we celebrate that every week, don't we? The freedom that is ours in Christ because of the finished work of Christ, but even in the context of the Christian's freedom, there are habits to be put to death. There are idolatries to be shunned. There are alliances to be avoided. And I'll give you an example of the habits for one. We've talked about this, Colossians 3, just as an example of the habits that are to be put to death that are ours until we do. Put to death, therefore, Paul writes, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those are the distinctives that are to mark our lives as New Testament followers of Christ. Mirroring what we are just reading in Deuteronomy about Israel to be distinctive. Peter himself picks it up. We just heard it read in our New Testament reading where he where he takes this passage and echoes it back to us. You were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. And then he follows that with a recipe for Christian living among the nations that sounds like this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the other nations, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. We're called to this distinction. We're called to be holy. That is our identity and our status. And the only way we will get there is if we understand the rest 
of the story. Your status and identity is not only, friends, that you are holy, that you've been set apart for God's purposes, but you are treasured. You are a special treasure. Do you have a special treasure? Is there anything in your home, in your room, that is special to you? Of course, there's something. Something is coming to your mind right now, maybe. What would you grab if the house caught on fire? There's a starting place. What is special? We've got a, we've got a chest of drawers full of old photos. I think that's where I would go. I don't know, but I, would, it's, I know where that is. I know where to find those drawers and how many drawers I could get out of the house. I don't know. But every drawer is a box full of memories and stories that wouldn't be repeated. But we have special treasures. And the fact is, what we're hearing in this passage, and it's repeated throughout the pages in the story of Scripture, is that you are special. You are God's special treasure. The word that, that we've encountered here is a word that refers to the private treasure of a king who, who owns everything else as well. I mean, the king owns everything. But there is a corner of the palace where he has his special treasures, his own. And that's you. You are his special treasure, valued above everything else. Out of all that he made, out of all of creation, he looks around and says, that people... That's my special treasure. He was referring then to Israel. And Israel is asking, like you, but, but why? Out of all that you made, why me? Have you ever been there? Well, it's fascinating how... This passage anticipates and then answers that question. And with pinpricks, Moses bursts any self-inflated bubbles of Israelite pride when he says, it wasn't because there were so many of you. In fact, you were few. It wasn't because you were the closest thing to what I have in mind and I had less work to do with you. <laughs> It's just the opposite. You were so few in number. You were the smallest. You were the weakest. You were the, you were the ones that required the most reconstruction. That's why. I've chosen you not because of anything in you as much as we would like that to be the case. He says, well, there are some reasons. It's not what you might have supposed, that you were strong and powerful and more strategic for my purposes. He says it in verse 7 when he says, you were those that I chose. His electing love. There, there's, a, there's a separation out. There's a distinguishing that God does that, that actually troubles us at some level. But God says, I chose you. I set my affection particularly on you, specifically in spite of who you are. As weak as you are, that's the people that I will use for my glory. 
The word that we read in verse 7 for love is a word that talks about passionate, committed love. He uses a different word in verse 8. And the word there refers to covenant loyalty. And so it's a passionate, committed love wrapped in covenant loyalty, which is why it is so unique that we don't see it or experience. We can't manufacture it on our own. It is a committed, passionate love wrapped in covenant loyalty. And the bond there is unbreakable. Those are tied together and they are focused on you. That passionate love and covenant loyalty are focused on you. When you woke up this morning, did you really know that you're treasured? Treasured? A special treasure out of all that God has made, you are treasured. And it's not because of anything you. It's his electing love. He goes on to say, it's his, the promise that he made to our ancestors. He's good to his word and his promise. And then he points to this historical redemption from Egypt, which is our story as well as theirs. The bondage that they had to Egyptian slave masters is the kind of bondage that we've had to all kinds of masters. We have... Everything mastering us until God breaks in and delivers us from that. And those are the reasons. My electing love, my promise to your forefathers, and the historical redemption, that's the thread and the story that continues. That's why you're treasured. Alexander McLaren wrote about this. God's love is not drawn out by our lovableness but wells up like an artesian spring from the depths of his nature. And Charles Simeon wrote, all Israel owed all their blessing to the distinguishing grace of God. The bottom line is this. God loves you because God loves you. It's really nothing, there's nothing else to say. God loved you because God loved you, and he loves you because he loves you. That's the call that we have to stand out. And then he gives us, and I've already spilled over a bit into it, the reasons that we are to stand out. It's what some have called the core of this entire chapter, verses 9 and 10. Look with me, verses 9 and 10. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. There are some hard words in there. But in the midst of it all, and the reason that we are to stand out is tied to our distinctive call is based on the very nature and character of God himself. That's what's behind it. Our call to be distinctive is based on the very nature and the character of God. And we see his nature right here in these troubling words. There's a righteousness that marks him that is at the heart of this call upon our lives to be distinctive. And that is, it's who he is. That he is distinct. 
that he is righteous and there's something that marks him out and it's so marked out, there's no middle ground with him. That's why there's a promise to those who look to him and love him and there's a warning to those who don't. There is no middle ground with God and there is to be no middle ground with those who belong to him. There's a righteousness that sits at the core that is given to us through the, it's the finished work of Christ and how we become that way. But, but it's in his own nature that is the root and the forming of this. The identity of God is not in doubt. He is a God of faithful love to a thousand generations to those who follow him, but one who repays quickly those who hate him. And I can't understand this passage well or leave it today without reminding us of how this is expressed in Exodus. You can look at it later, chapter 34, where the accent there, same categories, love and retribution. But the accent there is on, the, on God's love, which is much stronger. Thousands of generations, we even hear it here. His love goes to thousands of generations. And in Exodus 34, his anger is expressed to three or four. I think there's something to that. I think there's something to the fact that God's love is expressed to the thousands of generations and his anger to three or four. And here's my hunch. That while there is significant weight in the Old and New Testament about the wrath of God and the righteousness that is his and what is coming due to those who hate him, He is quicker to turn from his wrath than he ever is to his love. He is poised and ready to turn from his wrath to those who hate him. He's quick to turn, but he will never to a thousand generations. And that's language of saying forever. (laughs) He will never turn from his love. And while both are true and are both are characteristics and both are features of who he is in his nature, he is ready to love. And it's a steadfast love. We read that. He's the faithful God. He's reliable and trustworthy. He's abiding by his promise. He fulfills his word as one who keeps covenant and displays steadfast love. That that word is hesed, which we've heard. It's 245 times in the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a drumbeat. His covenant love for us. He's one, we read in verse 9, who keeps that covenant. A covenant God making with his people a covenant to demonstrate his unfailing love for them in such a way that all his promises to them are fulfilled. Not some, but all. And so when we get to verse 11, you can almost hear Moses catching his breath. The expression there, it's a stylistic clue that when he he summarizes as a little uh, exhortation, it's like, okay, in light of all of this, here's what you're to live. Here's what you're to do. Be careful to do and obey the commandments and the statutes and the rules I've given you today. (sighs) But the story doesn't end there. That's the... 
that's the call upon our lives. Those are reasons for it. But what happens when we don't? Verses 9 and 11, his people are, are called those who love him and those who keep his commandments. Sounds a whole lot like John 14, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there are a lot of reasons that we don't. Autonomy or self-will. Fear of rejection or pride. That's why I will blend into the wall and not stand out. C.S. Lewis said, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. That was true of Peter. There's a lot of episodes about Peter's life that stand out, but none more so than than the conversation, the three-part conversation he had in the garden or following the garden, following Jesus' arrest when Peter had three chances to stand out and chose to run or blend, to hide in the crowd. Ever done that? Yeah. Peter. Peter who understood, who had been called out and and understood, in fact, He's citing this passage in his letter about being a different, being holy and treasured and and we're his. But Peter learned like we need to learn. That there is someone who meets us in our brokenness and in our failures when we stumble and when we don't stand out. When we choose to blend in, when we choose to hide and run. And the reason is this. Though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. Even in the midst of our failure. Those words that we've talked about, that covenant love, that passionate love wrapped in covenant faithfulness, remember? Moments ago. (laughs) That's the same word that you read in Deuteronomy 6 where we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Covenant love. That's your obligation. That's our obligation to the one who loves us, to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind. And yet I stumble and fail. Has there ever been a moment where I've loved God with all my heart, soul, and mind? I doubt it. Has there ever been a moment? Which is why I find gospel in Jeremiah 32, where we and you can read later, where God expressing his love for his people says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Coincidence? I don't think so. You see, the God, the covenant-keeping God who calls you to himself and says, love Me, with all your heart and soul, I know you won't. But I will plant you in this land, and I will do it in faithfulness with all my heart, with all my soul. That's his passionate commitment, covenant faithfulness to you. 
And so when we get to Psalm 89 and we read these words, God speaking about a promise to a king named David, he says, my steadfast love will keep him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk in my rules. Okay, now I got your attention. If my children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And my question in yours is, how can that both be true? How can God pledge himself to punish those who violate his command and be faithful to his promise to David? Well, I think you do know. Some of you understand that when God declares that I will punish their, their transgression with the rod and the iniquity of their, with their stripes, that the, your mind and heart flashes forward to a cross where Isaiah says it was by his stripes that you were healed. You see, the covenant-making God doesn't cut you off because he cut his son off. That's why he can pledge his faithfulness to his promises and pledge retribution for those that violate it because in Christ, that was done. You see, this story goes on not because you hold up your end of the bargain, but that God holds up his end of the bargain and yours too. <laughs> it's that good news. It's that better news than anything you would ever hope to be true. And what that does, it is stirs in you. When you begin to grasp that and taste that and take it, drink it in, it stirs in you a grateful response, a loving obedience, and guess what? A little bit of holiness because you belong to the one who is holy, but also the one who is merciful and full of steadfast love, who did for you what you could not do. He keeps the covenant. He keeps the covenant for you and with you. It's that good. So we're a part of a story. Our focus is on things above. Our call is to live distinctive lives in this world because of the very nature and character of God. And when we don't, we have a Savior and a Redeemer 
who meets us and provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Our hope, you see, is not in us. It's in a covenant-keeping, faithful, steadfast, loving, forever-present God who comes to us Father, Son, and Spirit. Children, come and let me tell you a story. Let's pray. Father, would you so root that story in us that our hearts and lives are different? Would we taste something today as we take in moments uh, bread and lips? and wine to our lips, something of your favor, your goodness, and the expression of it in Christ our Lord, who gave his life that we would live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.